Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to be with you. We're going to look at 1 Samuel this morning. It's a book that is set about the same time as Ruth, and uh, we're looking at it in the midst of the Ruth series. I wanted to bring the story of another strong woman who is unbeknownst to her, connected to the kingship of David, as was Ruth. So a very interesting story about the same time, a little bit afterwards. basic point of 1 Samuel chapter 1 is that God uses ordinary people in painful circumstances to accomplish his work. I want to I read through the passage. The passage is almost good enough just to read and, and then go home. It's so interesting, the dynamics of what's happening here, the things that God is doing, the nuances of a, a very old and ancient culture, and the things that God is preparing for in this passage. All very interesting. So listen closely. 1 Samuel 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zotham, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from this his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the afflictions of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, but only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. 
and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to the house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him for the Lord. It's a fascinating passage. I have three points of an outline for you. Uh, I didn't mean to do this, but they all start with the letters P. All the words start with P. I didn't mean to do that. It just kind of happened. Verses 1 through 8, pride and prejudice. Section 2, prayer and pain in verses 9 through 20. Section 3, pictures of a promise, verse 21 through 28. Let's look at pride and prejudice in verses 1 through 8. It starts with a certain man, our story does, in verse 1. Although the major character here is certainly not a man, it's not about a man at all, but a woman, Hannah, in verse 2. But we need to mention the man briefly. His name is Elkanah. He lived near Bethlehem. He was a good sort of fellow. He came from a strong line, a strong family, the tribe of Ephraim, one of the half-tribes of Manasseh, the other half-tribe. The Bible lists his people all the way back to his great-great-grandfather. He had money, he had children, and he had two wives. Most importantly for our story, he was a very religious man. Because every year we read in verse 3 that he goes to Shiloh, where the tent of meeting was, where the Ark of the Covenant resided to make sacrifices to the Lord. He's consistent, he's faithful, and during one of these religious pilgrimages, we're introduced to his family soap opera. Elkanah's first wife, Hannah, was unable to have children, we read, so it was common in the day to take a second wife. Elkanah took another wife, Peninnah, and Peninnah had multiple children. We don't know exactly how many, but at least four, maybe ten. It certainly helped the lineage going. It also birthed great grief for Hannah. It it would have been enough if Peninnah had lots of kids. It would have been painful enough for Hannah. But Peninnah took her fruitfulness to rub Hannah's face in it. In verse 6, she provokes Hannah to tears. Peninnah is the kind of woman you've met before. You know this woman the kind who uses her good fortune to make others miserable. Can you imagine sitting around the table at the yearly holiday festival? The meal has been cooked. All are sitting down. There's laughter and banter. Except the penina is taking to salting old wounds again. Here's how Dale Ralph Davies imagines this meal. Penina says, Now, do all you children have food? Dear me, there's so many of you, it's hard to keep track. Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What did you say, dear? I said, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Oh, Miss Hannah, yes, right. She doesn't have any children. Doesn't she want children? Oh, yes, she wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had children too, Hannah? Mommy, doesn't Daddy want Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly he does, but Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. 
She just can't have kids. Why not? Why? Because God won't let her. Does God not like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, oh, by the way, Hannah, did I tell you I'm pregnant again? <laughs> and there it was. Year in, year out, being goaded. Such that Hannah lived in perpetual depression. Now, this is certainly not new to the Bible. It reminds us of older stories in the Bible. Sarah and Hagar, Rachel and Leah. Many lessons to be learned here in verses 1 through 8. Besides the obvious, there are obvious lessons, which is polygamy is bad for harmonious marriage or being nasty can hurt people's feelings. I mean, there's some obvious things. But let me point out two deeper meanings, two deeper take-home points from verses 1 through 8. Number one, Beware the pride of position that leads to prejudice. You know, it was easy for Peninnah to think that she was special. Maybe that she even merited favor from God. That's the the pride of position. It, It makes it easy to look down on those who don't have what you have. And since there's so many people who lack what we have, there's lots of people to look down on. There's always someone less fortunate than you. Peninnah probably thought it was no big deal to treat Hannah as a worthless woman. No one was going to remember her anyway. She didn't have any children, right? Now, with with the benefit of hindsight, we can look back and see that Peninnah represents all calloused, arrogant persons of privilege who use their positions of power to grind others into despair. Listen, if you you are in some position of power, and, and as I look around, I would say almost all of you are. A boss or a father, a mother, a teacher, an older classmate, an aunt or an uncle. You need to use it to care for others. Be careful to be humbled towards those who are going through hard times. Those who are easily seen as worthless in society. These are people easily ignored. Mostly... Mostly we do that. Mostly we humble ourselves to others because that's how God treats us. You know, it's amazing that Hannah, who has no social standing at all, calls on the Lord of hosts to humble himself and condescend to listen to her prayers. But not only that, we should humble ourselves because the Bible says, you may be dealing with angels unaware. You don't know who people are going to be in the kingdom of God. And actually, there's a secret like that in this passage. This is a spoiler alert for anyone who has not read the Bible. I want to alert you to this. I'm going to spoil what's coming up. Peninnah doesn't know that she is living with the mother of the greatest and last judges of the nation of Israel. Hannah was chosen to bear a special child whose name was Samuel, the one who one day would anoint King David King. Samuel was to King David what John the Baptist was to Jesus, the forerunner, the one who anointed him, his rightful position. And Peninnah missed it. She completely didn't see it. So unless you want to 
be remembered as Peninnah did through the centuries as an insensitive person. Humble yourself. Be sensitive to those who want children and can't have them. To those who want a job and can't get one. To those who want education but will never be able to go to school. It's so easy to miss people who are weak or oppressed or marginalized. I have three sons, Tristan, David, and Isaac. My oldest son, Tristan, is successful. He works as property management in Abu Dhabi. He's getting ready to go back to the States and get his master's in business uh, uh, administration. He, He loves Jesus. He's active at UCCD. My youngest son, Isaac, is a delight to his parents. He's a joy, full of laughter, just like his name. He's breezing through the engineering department at the university in the States. He's married to Stephanie, a most wonderful daughter-in-law, godly. They're plugged into their church and student campus ministry. They love God and love people around them. They're exceptional. I have a middle son. His name is David. He's easily marginalized. He's autistic. He loads boxes on a conveyor belt for his job every day. He's easily ignored. But I learned from my son David. Sometimes because he's ignored, I think, because he's marginalized, he sees things I can't. Maybe because he's ignored, he sees ignored people. He was at McDonald's eating. He goes to McDonald's regularly and eats there. It's his favorite restaurant. When we ask him to go to a nice restaurant, he says, I don't like fancy food. A panhandler, a woman who was begging, came up to David and said, I need some money. And David said, as we've taught him, I can't give you money. And she said, I don't need money. They're getting ready to turn off my water and my home. I need to pay my water bill. And, of course, this is an old ploy. Nobody believes that, right? David said, well, I can pay your water bill. So he put her in his car, and he drove her to the water company. And it was true. The water company was getting ready to turn off her water. And so he pulled all the money he had in the world that he had earned from doing yard work at grandfather's house, who believes that David should work hard, and gave it to the water company to pay her bill. And then drove her all the way across the uh, the great city of Louisville, about an hour and a half, to her home and dropped her off. Because he had seen her. And you know, it made me treasure David. Maybe treasure him. You can't imagine how a father feels when someone sees someone who's ignored or marginalized who is their son. You can't imagine how much I love people who see my son as a real person. You can't imagine. And I think God is like that. God is like that. When you see the potential that someone might be, when you value someone else, someone who might be a child of God, when you do that, it means so much to the Lord. Make that a lesson about pride and prejudice. 
There's another lesson here on pride and prejudice from Elkanah. Just as you don't want to be Penina, neither do you want to be an Elkanah. Whereas Penina was prideful about what she had, Elkanah is prideful about himself. I mean, what kind of guy tries to comfort his wife like Elkanah, right? I mean, so you see how he's tried to comfort his wife? Look in verse 7. When she is really, really depressed, and while she's weeping, do you see what he says? He goes, baby, I don't know why you're sad. You got me. Aren't I better than ten kids? <laughs> to which, of course, every woman in the house says, no, <laughs> absolutely not. His clumsy, awkward, self-centered inability to empathize only makes things worse. Now, okay, in Elkanah's defense, he does really love her, the text says, and he does give her an extra portion of meat in verse 5, which I guess is Old Testament for chocolate candy and flowers. But she won't eat, so the double portion of meat doesn't really mean much anyway. And worse, her heart is sad in verse 8. Listen, I, I think we have some new husbands in the congregation over the past year and a half. I think there's some new husbands here. I have marriage lesson 101. Your wife loves you. She really does. She thinks you're wonderful. But don't let it go to your head because one day you're going to come to an Elkanah moment. You're going to want to comfort your wife, but you're not sure how. And maybe you're like Elkanah, you're not even sure what the problem is. When that happens, the point, of course, is to be empathetic. Even if you don't understand, even if you don't know what's going on, you need to be empathetic with your wife and her pain. Don't just lower, don't just lower the volume on the sports program. Turn off, turn off the football match. Turn it off and be empathetic. Never ever tell her that she should be thankful to have you. <laughs> Don't do that. Okay, you, you, probably, you probably get that. You're way ahead of Elkanah. After all, Elkanah is the guy who went off and got another wife when the first one didn't measure up, rather than forsaking all others until death do us part, as we're supposed to do. So empathy is good. Empathy is a good thing. But what you really need to know, this is lesson 201, what you really need to know is how to lead your wife to God when she's in pain. Or lead anyone to God when they're in pain, but especially your spouse. You know, there, there was a time when I would go to marriage books uh, because I wanted to be a better husband. And uh, I wanted to have a peaceful marriage and live in love. I mean, who, who doesn't want that, right? And most books I've read on marriage or about that as its aim, just to be peaceful together, to love one another, and to live in love in marriage. And, and that's a good thing. But ultimately, that's not what Christian marriage is about. Ultimately, it's not just to have a better marriage for a peaceful life, a loving life, as good as that is. It's much, much more. Christian marriage is about pointing each other to Jesus. To help each other's spouse to become more like Christ to deal with sin in real gospel ways, to understand how to conform our marriages to the image of Christ. The reason you want to point your spouse to Jesus is because there are some things only God can do. Husbands, there are some things only God can do. 
spouses, wives. There are some things only God can do. And God is dealing with Hannah in a way that no man or husband ever could. Because notice who's responsible for all this pain that Hannah's going through. It's not just Peninnah. It's not just Elkanah. You see that little phrase in verse 5? You see it? We tend to pass over it. The Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. Which leads us to the second section, painful prayer, verses 9 through 20. In verses 9 and 10, Hannah has a breakdown. She can't take it anymore. And while the rest of the family eats, she flees to the temple to pour out bitter tears to the Lord of hosts. Judge Eli is there watching in verse 9. You, know, you notice even clergy can't help her. He thinks she's a drunk. When Hannah prays, she calls God Lord of hosts. This is the first time in the Bible the title's used. It's a powerful, almost macho phrase. It's an allusion to God as the Lord of the armies of heaven. It's a power position. What's striking is that Hannah would even think that the Lord of hosts would listen to the problems of an obscure woman from the hill countries of Ephraim. Problems concerning squabbling between two women over children. And you know what? Her theology is exactly right. God does listen. He hears those who call out from their poverty. He remembers the poor, the downtrodden, the forgotten, the humble. He's not too busy with the affairs of heaven, leading the armies of heaven. In verse 11, Hannah makes a vow. If God will remember her, and if God will give her a son, she will dedicate her son to God as a Nazarite, one who is set apart for the Lord's service. Now, of course, some, some people say that Hannah is bargaining with God. Uh, maybe, maybe she is. I mean, there's mixed motives for all of us. I think you've heard me say how when I was young and idealistic, I thought the only kind of prayers I could have were perfectly pure prayers of pure motive, right? And then I realized as I got older and, and more curmudgeon that uh, actually I kind of shot for mixed motives. I was happy when I hit a mixed motive, you know, rather than just the awful base motives, Right? So I think, I think Hannah may have mixed motives, but, but maybe, just maybe, for Hannah, the best thing that she could imagine, the most wonderful thing that she could come up with in her mind was that her children would serve the Lord with full devotion. Hannah prays a heartfelt prayer and petitions in verse 12 until Eli interrupts and tells her to get off the booze in verse 13 and 14. Hannah explains she's not drunk. Rather, she's praying in great distress and anxiety in verses 15 and 16. She says she's been pouring out her soul to the, to the Lord. She's not pouring liquor into herself. She's pouring out her soul to the Lord. When Eli understands, he blesses her in verse 17 and says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. So she goes back to the dinner party, but she's changed. Her depression lifts in verse 18. She's able to eat. And later, after they go home, in verses 19 and 20, she conceives. 
And she has a son. And she names him Samuel. Well, just as there were things to learn from Peninnah and from Elkanah, there's much to learn from Hannah about prayers and pain. Now, there are many who say Hannah got what she wanted because of the way she prayed. Have you heard this before? This is very common. People say she prayed hard, and so we should pray hard. She prayed with intensity, and we should pray with intensity. Because she had enough faith, God gave her the desires of the heart. So, the reasoning goes, if we do what Hannah did, we'll get what we want. Have you heard that? Very, very common. Well, be very careful about this kind of thinking. First, because a man like Samuel isn't born every day. This is a momentous event. But moreover, be careful because there is a strong tendency in the human heart to turn prayer into magic. Magic seeks to manipulate God, to make God do things for us. I want to stand here to tell you, your prayers do not make God do anything for you or anyone else. They do not make God do anything. God is sovereign. Actually, there's, there's a word for that heresy. It came from the fellow named Pelagius, and we call that Pelagianism. That's a heresy. We can't manipulate God. It's why there's so many laws against divination and magic in the Bible. Besides, listen, if, if God's goal for us is to live a happy, prosperous, pain-free lives on earth, what, what do we do with this unfortunate phrase in verse 5? The Lord closed her womb. The pain that Hannah knows has been brought to her by God. And, and so that we don't miss it, so the reader doesn't miss it, it's repeated again in verse 6. The Lord had closed her womb. Why? Why had God done that? Why had he put her in pain? Couldn't have God done better than this? Let me ask you you a whole series of questions. I want to ask you questions. Don't you think God knew about Samuel long before Hannah knew about Samuel? The the answer is always yes. These are rhetorical questions. It's kind of like when I do a wedding, you know, just, just to the groom. Just say yes. Just say I do. You say, answer in the affirmative. So we're going to answer in the affirmative. Don't you think God knew about Samuel before Hannah knew about Samuel? Yeah. This is an open book test. I'll give you the answer anyhow. Don't think that this story has more to do about what God wants. Don't you think this story has more to do with what God wants than what Hannah wants? Yes. The Bible says that all Scripture points to Jesus. Don't you think that God knew that Hannah would have pain long before Hannah felt pain? Yes. Don't you think that God is more interested in his glory than our comfort? Yeah, that's, that's the story of Job proving Satan a liar. His pain gave glory to God. Don't you, don't you think that God gets greater glory when we're faithful to him in the midst of our pain? He does. It's easy to give God glory when everything's going great. So might it be true that God squeezes us in pain to move us to prayer? Yes. Into faithful, life-transforming, Jesus-shaping prayer through pain. God certainly transformed Hannah in prayer. Prayer is shaping Hannah. 
And we know that because nothing changes in her life. Do you see that? When she leaves the temple, her depression lifts. In verse 18, she's able to eat. She's no longer sad. But her circumstances have not changed. Do you see that? Hannah's prayer hasn't gotten her the things she wants. They haven't changed her circumstances immediately. What's changed is Hannah. Hannah has been having her heart moved by God in prayer. So when we go to God in prayer, we're changed too. We don't change God, we're changed. We become more like God. When we pray, our hearts are more tuned to His. So pray hard. Pray long. Pray with intensity and faith. But not so you'll get what you want but so that you'll be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus. Pray. Pray so that you will know God more and more and that His desires will become your desires. Pray so that you will want to give Him joy and honor and glory so that you will be aligned with the living God. And when pain comes, and I promise you it will come, I want you to remember six things. Six things in pain. Number one. Just one sentence, six things. Number one, remember to focus not on your circumstance, but on the Lord of hosts. Number two, remember, our despair just might be the start to a great work of God, like it was for Hannah. Number three, remember God uses pain to press you into prayer with him for his glory and our transformation. So take heart especially of those of you who are in pain now, you cannot pray in faith without being changed. Number four, remember, we don't have faith to get things. We have faith to please God. In Hebrews eleven sixteen, the Bible says that without faith, we cannot please God. The Bible says in Genesis 15 that God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. Habakkuk. The prophet later, almost towards the end of the Old Testament, says that the righteous shall live by faith. And in the book of Romans, Paul picks that phrase up and says, the righteous shall live by their faith. It's critical. Number five, remember when pain comes, count it all joy. James says in chapter 1, verse 2, count it all joy when trials come, knowing that you are being refined. You are being sanctified. And number six, remember, never forget, we are people of the cross. We believe the greatest joy, our redemption, came from the greatest pain, the crucifixion. That's the the bigger picture of, of prayer and pains, which brings us to our last point, pictures of the promise in verses 21 through 28. You know, I love, I love that Hannah remembers her promise to God. We, we, we don't really know how much time there is between verse 20 when Hannah gives birth and verse 21 when Elkanah goes back to Shiloh. We, we're not sure how much time has elapsed. The Bible only says that in due time. But Samuel was probably around four years old. I love what Elkanah says in verse 23 too. His concern is that the word of the Lord be established. He wants Hannah to keep her vow. But eventually, 
They take their offerings. These are offerings of a wealthy class of people, bulls, great mounts of wine in verses 24 and 25. They sacrifice to the Lord. And they hand their young son, Samuel, over to Eli. Eli sees them again in verse 25. And he receives Samuel into the temple of the Lord. You know how hard it is to remember our promises to other people, especially when there's some sacrifice to us. Have you noticed that? I have a very convenient memory about that. When I promise some, something that's going to cost me down the road, I, I, I'm amazed at how forgetful I can get. That's why we have lawyers, I suppose. But not Hannah. She remembers. She remembers exactly. She repeats back her promise that was to the Lord and to Eli. She repeats it back to Eli years later. She's not sacrificing her son. She is giving him back to God. Now listen, I've already meddled in your, in your, in your marriages. Can I meddle with your kids? I have just one question. What is your greatest hope for your kids? And I don't, I don't just mean your own children. For nieces or nephews or grandchildren. Children in our church. Is it fame? Is it fortune, a good life? Or, or as my mother told me, we just want you to be happy. I did notice that my happiness had a lot to do with some success. <laughs> is that your hope, or is it is your greatest hope for your children godliness? Is that your hope? I fear many of us are seduced by the world. And maybe not for ourselves, but for our children and their success. A number of years ago, my youngest son, Isaac, who is a math whiz, was shocked to see the other kids in the school doing better than him that he thought weren't quite as good, and then realized they were cheating. They were getting awards. And it was a, it was a wonderful school at ASD, but... My response was to seek justice. I pretty quickly enrolled in the honor council at the school and wanted to bring the hammer down on cheaters who were actually getting awards that should have gone to my son. It was a dead end. Actually, some of the board members' children were the ones who were getting the top awards. But Leanne was the one that reminded Isaac, Isaac, we would rather have failing marks that were your own work and top marks through cheating. And Isaac was comforted about that. And it's true. And we see the fruit of it in his life. Think about Hannah here. She does not pray for fame or fortune or good grades or my favorite grandchildren, lineage. I'm praying for grandchildren. She prays that he will belong to the Lord. And he does. Of course, she got so much more, more than she could have ever hoped or imagined. She played a role in the life of King David. And what an amazing woman Hannah was. You know, the elders at Redeemer here regularly think about women in the life of the church. Now, we are committed to a complementarian position. That is, we believe that men should be elders 
on the basis of Scripture. Not because we think that women can't lead. (laughs) Uh, For that matter, not because we don't think that women can't lead better than us. I I think many women do and can lead better than us. But the, the issue is not performance. The issue is not about how well we perform, but about a a certain image that God wants to display through his church. I think there are other reasons, too, that God calls men to lead, one of which is men tend to abdicate responsibility. It started back in the garden. Where was Adam when Eve was talking to Satan? I mean, after all, it started there. But with that said, still, we want women in leadership. We have women deacons, and furthermore, Women are doing some of the best teaching and digging into the Bible at Redeemer. I understand this past week, Joanna Matthew taught 75 women who gathered together to study the Scriptures. And Joanna was teaching them not just about the Bible, but how to study the Bible. And I I have to admit, I was a little jealous because it was hard for me to imagine 75 men getting together to study the Scriptures like that. But don't, don't miss what's critical here. Don't miss the critical leadership of Hannah in the home. She took the lead of dedicating the child to God. Hannah made sure that it happened. It's clear that she's a major figure of godliness in the family, especially in contrast to the family of the one who should have been leading well. His name was Eli. He was in the temple. But you know why Hophni and Phinehas weren't? They were out in the countryside ripping off the people, stealing their money, stealing their agricultural fruit. They will come to a bad end in chapters 2 and 3, but just so you know. Let me tell you the bigger picture of the story, though. This story is more than about family life. It's not even about Samuel and King David, although that's a a credible and important piece of this puzzle. Just as God remembered Hannah, God remembers us. He remembers all of us. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, so that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Hannah, you see, is a picture of that promise of the gospel. As with Hannah, God remembers us. Just like Hannah, there's a plan for us. As with Hannah, God knows we can't save ourselves. The Bible says in Romans 5 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't even know we needed God to save us. As with Hannah, God loves the humble. Is there there anything more humble than going to the holy God, the Lord of hosts, and confessing that we're sinners? Just like Hannah, we must flee to God knowing that salvation is only found in him. Just like Hannah, we must put our complete faith and trust in God to faithfully walk with God all the days of our lives, despite our circumstances. There's one part of the story that's very different. There's a parallel, but it's different. Though there's some loss in Hannah's life with her child, she will have six more. Samuel serves in the temple all the days of his life. He does not die for the sins of the world. There's only one who can do that. Only one. Andre prayed for him, Jesus. He prayed for you to know him. Jesus who hung on a tree for our sins. God put 
our sins on Christ's body on the cross. And he was God's son. God did not spare his only son, the Bible says. God did not let him stay on that tree. He rose from the dead. He lives today. His arms are open wide for all and any that would turn from sin and turn to him. The broken, the downtrodden, the ignored. All those who society forgets merely need to confess their sin and humbly come to him. Just like Hannah, Jesus is the only one that can heal your soul. So I beg you now, turn to him. Do it where you sit. Let's pray. O Lord of hosts, we thank you that we can come to you. That you would receive our prayers stuck in the middle of the desert unknown people. And yet, oh God, you would hear us. We're awed by that. We thank you. We thank you, Father, that we pray for a son too, the the son of the living God, Jesus. We pray, Father God, that his work on the cross might be appropriated to our account. Father God, reach into our world with this amazing good news and save us, we pray, O oh God. We pray that would happen for your name's sake and for your glory. And all the people said, Amen.